Welcome to the Saving Grace Adventist Church Sermon Podcast. We pray that you will be blessed by the Word of God. Not too long ago, I read, <clears throat> I read a story on a book. The book is entitled Finding the Father. And in this book, um, Pastor Herb, that's his name, Herb, tells his life story. And he says that he remembers when he was a, a young boy growing up uh, with his mom. He's the son of a single mother. He said he remembers that they were always moving from different places. You know, I think they started in Virginia. Then all of a sudden they moved to uh, North Carolina. And then all of a sudden they moved to Georgia, I think. Then they moved to California. His memories were that they were always on the run, moving, right? Uh, he grew up a young man in California. And uh, in the book, he says that he met a beautiful young girl, young lady that eventually became uh, his wife. But he tells a story that when he was uh, planning to uh, propose to her, you know, he, he, he made an elaborate plan in a restaurant right on the ocean, on the Pacific Ocean. He planned it in such a way that when he was to ask the question the sun was going to be setting, it was, it was beautiful. And, and he knew that all of this was just a process because he knew that the young lady was in love with him and that he was in love indeed with her. And when he asked the question, will you marry me, the young lady said no. He was shocked. He could not believe. Why? Why will you not marry me? And she said, well, you know why? Because I cannot marry somebody that doesn't have a good relationship with his father. He was thrown back by this. And he said to her, but you know, I don't have a father. I mean, I do, but he has never taken an interest on me. I have told you the story many times. Never, nothing, you know, for birthdays, graduation, nothing. I don't even know the men. And she said, well, it just so happened that I know where your father lives. I investigated, and your father lives in this city where we are. In fact, he lives not too far from here. And in fact, I want you and I to go and visit him. These are grown-up men around, 20 plus. In, but he loved this young lady, so he said, let's go. So they went, they knocked on the door. This stranger, for him, opened the door. And he said, listen, my name is Herb. Gave the last name. He said, I believe I'm your son. The man was shocked. He didn't know he outwardly, you know, invite them in and say, come, come in, come, come to the living room. And they sat down, there the three of them, the girlfriend, Herb, and the, the father. And he said they had one of the most strange conversations. You know, it was awkward, you know. The man was kind of embarrassed. Herb didn't want to look at him straight. 
But, but they had a conversation. The most interesting uh, person in the conversation was the girlfriend, right? She was very interested that this man establish a relationship. So they continue to visit, you know, like once a month, once a month. They continue to visit, and they started to develop a relationship. As I said, more her with the uh, future father-in-law, more her. But one afternoon, Pastor Herb says that uh, the young lady, without giving him any uh, warning, she asks this direct question. She said to the, to the father, she said, so how come you never took interest on your son? Herb says he just looked down to the floor and he was thinking, what are you doing? Why are you asking him that in front of me? Why didn't you tell me that you were going to ask him that? So he just kept looking to the floor. Imagine the father. The father is shocked. So tell us the truth. How come you never looked for your son? The man didn't say a word. He stood up and he said, follow me. And both of them follow him to the kitchen. And there on this cabinet, he, he pulled down a box. A box. He opened the box. And the box had envelopes and some gifts. And he said, son, this is everything that I have always sent to you. For every birthday, for every graduation. These are gifts, you know, toys that I have sent. But your mother always sent them back to me. In fact, he says, whenever I knew where you guys were living, I always moved to that city just to be close to you. And when she found out that I was close, she would move without telling me. Hence, you know, that's the reason I'm living in this town. Because I found out that you were living here. And in that moment, Herb started crying. Crying. Because you see, everything that he knew about his father was a lie. Was not true. The mother always told him that his father had no interest, absolutely no interest in him. So then Herb just started crying, crying, crying. Can you imagine everything that you knew about a person? It's a lie. It's a lie. Let me tell you something this morning. God has been misunderstood for a long time. More than Herb's dad. There's so many things about God that we assume. See, we assume things about God that are not true. And, 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 and don't blame yourself so much for those assumptions because many of them, we have learned them. And all of them, all of those wrong assumptions have been suggested by the enemy of God, Satan. From the beginning, he started, you know, uh, telling the other angels that God was egocentric and proud and wanted everything for himself. That indeed God was not love. And all those lies about God have been. 
passed, yeah, from generation to generation. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. Paul, the context of this passage, Paul is talking about the resurrection to the Corinthians. And it seems that there are some people that do not believe or didn't believe him that uh, people were going to be resurrected. So he is explaining uh, how the resurrection is going to take place, you know, and he, in the, the context says that flesh, there are different type of flesh, you know, animals, humans, that there is heavenly, uh, spiritual nature. That is the context. And then he says in verse 45, and so it is written. The first man, what's the name of the first man? Adam became a living being. This is a direct quote from Genesis, right? Adam, which in Hebrew is a word that means humanity or humankind, right? That's what Adam means. He is the father of humanity. Amen? Adam was created, right? He became a living being. And then he says, the, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he's saying that there are two Adams. The first Adam, right? The husband of Eve. And then the second Adam that he gives spirit. He's a spirit giving. Who's the second Adam? Jesus Christ, right? Paul is just calling him second Adam. He's calling him another man or the second man, okay? Now remember, Adam represents humanity, amen? Adam represents humanity, humanity. For us, it's very difficult to understand, right, how... Uh, a man can represent a whole race, you know, the whole human race. Not so much for the Eastern mentality, you know. Uh, for example, Paul uh, will say that Jesus, uh, he will say that Jesus is greater than any other priest that has ever existed, you know. Uh, Paul will say that Jesus is the high priest, okay. The high priest. Now, when Paul makes that statement, Jewish had a problem with that. You see, they said, no, that cannot happen. That cannot be because uh, Jesus, you know, from a human perspective, was not from the tribe of Levi. Okay? Only descendants from Levi were priests. So Jesus is not a descendant from the, time, from the tribe of Levi. Yet Paul said, no, but he is a high priest. So in order to prove that Jesus is indeed a high priest, this is what Paul says. Paul says, now you remember that you remember that Abraham gave tithe to Melchizedek, a high priest. Yet that priest Melchizedek was not of the tribe of Levi. I mean, he existed before Levi. This is Abraham, the father or the great-great-grandfather of Levi that is giving tithe to Melchizedek, right? So now, now watch what Paul does with his Eastern mentality. He says, so Levi, you see, a descendant of Abraham, Levi, even though he was not born, he says, was in the loins of Abraham. That's how he said he was in the loins of Abraham giving tithe to Melchizedek, okay? So he says, so Jesus 
is a priest not according to the order of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek. See? Hence, he says, superior. Does that make sense? So, so, so in, the, in the Eastern mentality, you can be in another person even when you were not born. Just as we are in Adam. You know, and by the way, Paul will say this. Through one man, sin came into the Because we all what? But what he's referring to is to the sin of Adam. He said that we all sin in Adam. Even though you and I were not there, we all sin in Adam because we're all descendants of Adam. Hence, we were in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned. Are you following me? Yes? Okay, good. Very good. So, Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is saying that there is a second Adam, right? His name is, of course, Jesus Christ. Verse 46 says, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. That's Adam, the husband of Eve, right? But the natural. And afterward, the what? The spiritual. The first man was of the earth. You remember he was created from the earth, right? Made of dust. The second man is, now watch that it doesn't say is from the Lord or is of the Lord. It doesn't say that, all right? So the first man is of the earth, from the dust. The second Adam is not of the Lord. Is the Lord. See the difference? Is the Lord himself. Oh, you have to be excited about that. You'll see why. Is the Lord. He's from heaven. 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. You see, we are of dust because our father, Adam, was of dust. Right? So you and I, we're all of dust. You have to say that. You have to acknowledge. So, as he was from dust, we are all of dust. And as is the heavenly man, that's the second Adam, right? So also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. You see what Paul is saying? Let, let me translate what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, we all sin in Adam. All right? Okay? See, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask you today, would you like to be like Adam before his sin? Let me see your hand. I'm asking you. Let me see your hand. Would you like to be like Adam before his sin? Yeah? Okay. That would be great, right? That would be great. Listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, that's nothing compared to what we have in Jesus Christ. Because Adam was not God, but the second Adam is God. You see, so the same way we are one in Adam, we are one in Jesus Christ. In the Greek, pastor, know this. The words that Paul uses to describe this is this. It's, a, it's what we call a superlative. He says, it, what we have in Jesus, he says, is much, much better. That's how he uses it. 
What we have in Adam, eh, okay, you know. But what we have in Jesus is much, much better. Because Jesus is God. You see, in the womb of Mary, in the womb of that teenager, I believe the greatest miracle in history took place. In the womb of Mary, the greatest miracle in history took place. For me, the greatest miracle was not the crossing of the Red Sea, as huge as that was. You understand? The greatest miracle took place in the womb of a teenager. Because there, humanity and divinity became one. You know for how long? For how long? Forever. Forever. Not for nine months, not for 33 years, not even for 1,000 years. Forever humanity and divinity became one in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we have. Sometimes we don't appreciate it, but that's what we have. Okay? The last words of verse 49 says, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We should be like God. That's what he's saying. We should be like God. But we have a problem. The problem is that we do not understand God. The problem is that God is being portrayed In a false manner. In a wrongful manner. So we are supposed to bear the image of God. But do we really know how God is? You see the problem? Do you see the conflict? I'm supposed to be like God. But God is me being misrepresented. So how can I be like God if I don't know how God is? See, this is not a new crisis. This was a problem all along. You see, in biblical times, God was misrepresented as being a harsh God, a punisher. See, if you behave bad, God will punish you uh, many ways. But the worst manner of punishment was a disease. Hmm? You remember the book of Job? His friends, what did the friends say to Job? Repent. You've did something wrong. Why are they saying that? Why are the friends saying that? Listen to me. Because their theology, watch this, their theology, their knowledge of God dictated that God acted in such a manner. You behave bad, he will punish you. So they're speaking according to their own theology. But they were wrong. They were wrong. God said it. I'm not saying this. If you read the book of Job, God says, I am mad at you because you are speaking wrong about me. That's what God says. Everything that you're saying about me is wrong. And in fact, he said, only my son, only my child, Job, has spoken what is truth about me so we come to the new testament and the theology 
the wrong theology continue. Lepers were not allowed to be even touched. It was called the rod of God. I mean, he can punish you in many ways, but if he punish you with leprosy, then you really, really did something wrong. Okay? That was their theology. Now, I want to tell you something, and I don't want you to forget this. The best theologian is Jesus Christ. You want to know how God is? Ask Jesus. He's the best, the best theologian. He came to tell you how his father is. Don't listen to people. Don't listen to traditions. You know, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we have a lot of traditions. Many of them are good traditions. Traditions are not all bad. There are some good traditions. But there are some traditions that are plain wrong about God. Do not, do not be surprised, okay? It has always been like that. And probably will continue to be like that. But the more we move closer to Jesus, the more we ask Jesus, shows your father, the better off we're going to be. Okay, so now with that in mind, with that in mind, let us go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, okay? See? Misunderstanding of God. The father of Herb had to show him a box, right? That was the evidence, right? That was the proof that he had. All the return envelopes. He had that evidence that indeed he loved them, right? That indeed he was interested in him, right? That was the evidence. Well, God also has a box of evidence. You want to know what the box is? The cross. The theme of this series. The cross is the box of evidence of how God is. Indeed. So if you go to chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then all the tax collectors. Is that in plural? Help me out. English is not my first language, so help me out. Is that in plural? All the tax collectors and the sinners. Is that in plural? Well, some translation says, and the worst of sinners. You know, some translations add that adjective. The worst of sinners. Who else? The Pharisees and the scribes, right? But all the sinners, watch this. All the sinners, what did they do? They drew near to Jesus. They drew near to Jesus. They drew near to Jesus. Now, let me ask you this. Brothers and sisters, answer me this question. Why did the worst of sinners draw near to Jesus? Why? Why? Help me out. I, I like to ask questions and I like people answering. Why? Why? Just shout it. Why? 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 Don't give me a sermon. Just tell me why. They recognize the need? What? They didn't feel guilty? Tell me, why did they draw near to Jesus? Why? He was a just man? Huh? His love? Forgiveness? Yes. It's because 
you go to a place where you are welcome. You never go to a place, I mean, you can go once, but if they don't welcome you, will you come back? No. People came near to Jesus because Jesus what? Welcomed them. Have you noticed that in children? Children do not, do not go near people that act rude to them. You see? If you, if you look like that to a child, behave. Children naturally run away, right? But if you're friendly with a child, what does a child do? Naturally, he what? So sinners felt comfortable in the presence of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus did not judge them. How do I know? Because John 3, 17 says, right? That God did not send his son to what? To condemn the world, right? I'm not saying that. The Bible says that. So Jesus didn't judge them, didn't condemn them. So sinners felt what? Welcome. But you see, there was a problem. Because in their theology, God did not associate with sinners. That was their theology. God absolutely, he's so pure, and that's true, he's pure, but the theology dictated that God does not come close to sinners. So when they see this man that is saying that he's the Messiah, that he's the son of God, right? That he's the Christ, they see him and he is associating himself with sinners. Sinners feel comfortable in his presence. The natural deduction, that it was a logical conclusion this man cannot, absolutely cannot be God. Because what Jesus is doing is contradicting their theology. You see how messed up sometimes we can be as human beings? We can come to the conclusion that we are more correct than God himself. Mercy. Think about that. We human beings have the capacity to conclude that we know God better than he knows himself. Think about that. The audacity of human beings. So, so they say, no, 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 no. This guy cannot be the Messiah. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes complain, saying, these men receive sinners and eats with them. The worst. Not only does he talk to them, but he eats with them. Again, in the Eastern mentality, you eat with somebody, your family. I mean, you, you break the bread, you're your family. That's it. You're one of them. So when Jesus is eating with sinner, what is he saying? I'm, I'm one of you. You are one of me, you know? Wow. These men receive sinners and eat with them. Now, church. I don't, I don't, I, I, this is the second time I'm speaking to you, right? So I don't know this church. But are sinners welcome in this place? Are sinners welcome in this place? Do sinners feel comfortable in this place? I'm saying, I'm saying if a drug addict comes right now through that door, Will you welcome him? 
You will welcome him. Where will you seat him? Where will you seat him? Eh? 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 Let me push the envelope. Can I push the envelope with you? Is okay? I'm, uh, right? Can I do it? What if a man comes dressed as a woman here? Will you welcome him or her? Where will you see him or her? What if a woman comes dressed as a man? I mean, I'm not speaking crazy. That's the world out there. The Bible says that, that the worst of sinners came and were near Jesus and they felt comfortable. So it's okay to say, oh, we're all sinners saved by grace. That's very good. But that's, you know, the reality is there are people out there that sometimes will feel uncomfortable in the presence at the bus stop. You're looking at me like if I'm lying. But I'm no, I'm not lying, Pastor Harding, right? There's some people that we feel uncomfortable in their presence at the bus stop. So I'm asking you, how would you feel if they come into this building? Because Jesus welcomes sinners, the worst of sinners. And the Pharisees criticize Jesus for welcoming sinners and eating with them. I mean, let, 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 let's be real, right? So those individuals that I describe, pick one of them, right? Will you go grab them by their hand and take them to Subway and share with them what? Not a tuna sandwich, right? A veggie delight. Very Adventist. Will you, will you, will you do that? That's my question. That's, that's reality. Everything else is just nice words, you know? But, but let's be real. Will you do that? Because Jesus would. I'm not making this up. It says here that he welcomed them and he ate with them. Amen? So, because he knew that they were criticizing him, because he knew that they were wrong about their assumption about his father, he knew his father was not like they were portraying him to be. So in response to that, he tells three stories, three parables, just to illustrate, just to illustrate how his father is indeed. That's what we find. The first story, you know, Jesus says, you're wrong. My father does associate with sinners. And I'm here to represent my father. So in order for you to understand, let me tell you three stories. The first one is that of a lost sheep, right? And he got lost. I don't know why. Jesus doesn't say why. You have heard sermons, right, as to why. She was distracted. The world was enticing. It was lost. It was lost. Now, let me ask you this. Do an animal knows 
And this is a domestic animal, by the way. These were domestic, you know, because they had a shepherd. There was a pen. Do domestic animals know when they are lost? Yes. The answer is yes. Yeah. If you've ever been in downtown and you've seen a lost dog, you can tell when a dog is lost. You know, they put their tail in between their legs and they're all scared. And you see that dog and you say, that dog is lost. Right? Because he's not in his familiar surroundings. Right? So, so, so the sheep knows that it is lost. Does it know how to come back? No, it doesn't know how to come back. That animal knows that it is lost, but it doesn't know how to come back. So, so what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd. By the way, who is the good shepherd in the story? Who is the good shepherd? It's Jesus. It's God. The good shepherd is God. Now, for you and for me, with a Western mentality, uh, we say, oh, yeah, the good shepherd, that's good. No, but for them, that was not good. Shepherds, as I mentioned last night, were considered the lowest of the lowest. It was not a prestigious uh, uh, position. See, shepherds were not people that you trusted. Remember when he said there are some that are just higher shepherds, right? And they run away when the wolf comes, the enemy comes, right? I mean, that's why when, when, when heavens, when God chooses to uh, reveal to shepherds that the Messiah was going to be born, right? It was not, a, you know, from a human perspective, it was not a wise decision. Because people didn't believe in shepherds. They were liars. They were deceivers. Isn't it interesting that God chose shepherds to, to say, go, 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 deliver the news to the world? Unbelievable, right? You, should, you and I should not be shocked of that. We should not be, oh, how could, you know why? Why? Because he chose us. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? Because we also do not deserve to know what we know, right? Because we have a treasure in what? In clay containers, right? We are. The shepherds. Anyway, but the good shepherd goes after the sheep that is lost, right? That's what we read. And uh, and uh, help me out here because some some is not working for me. Go to the next slide, can you? Oh, he's gone. All right. All right. Let me continue. So it is lost, and when it finds the sheep, what does the shepherd do? What does he do? What does he do when he finds the ship? Hmm? Does he does he beat the ship? Bad ship? Why do you run away? Why are you lost? Oh, you don't know that you're lost? Well, let me tell you that you are lost. Does that help the ship? I already told you the ship already knows that it is lost. The problem is not knowing that it is lost. The problem is how to go back. Brothers and sisters, there are many sinners. They don't need to know that they're sinners. They already know. They're suffering. They already know. In their hearts, they know. When they go, you know, late at night in the bed, they know they're, they're, they're hurting. Their relationships are bad. They don't need somebody else to go and tell them, let me tell you, you are lost. 
they need somebody to go and point them and sometimes grab them by the hand and take them back home. Amen? Yes, the image that we find is that of the good shepherd taking the ship on his shoulders. Amen? What a beautiful portrait on his shoulder. And he's going back to the pen. And when he gets back home, the Bible says that, what does he do? What does he do? What does he, what does he do? He throws a, a party. Can I call it a fiesta? Okay, it's the same thing, right? He throws a fiesta. A lot of food. By the way, those fiestas in the, in the Middle East, they had loud music. Yeah. Look at the Greek, you know, or Hebrews or Jewish festivities. They dance. So there was a big fiesta. Why is he throwing a big fiesta? Why? Because he's happy. Why is he happy? Because he found the sheep that was what? Lost. And he says it on the parable. He says, that's why there is more joy in heaven for one sinner than what? Than for 99 what? That think that they don't need repent. Right? So he throws a big fiesta. And he asks the neighbors, come and celebrate. Come and celebrate. I have found my ship. It was lost, but I have found it. And they celebrate with a big fiesta. Amen? All right. Okay. The second parable is that of a lady that lost a coin. One coin. Okay? She lost one coin. As with the sheep, if you had 99, business people will tell you, you have 99. You don't need to risk your life and go after one, right? But this is a different kind of shepherd, right? Same with this woman. She only lost one coin. Why is she all upset? She lost one coin. Well, the Bible says that she what? By the way, let me ask you this. Who did the shepherd represent in the first parable? God, right? Who does this woman represent in the second parable? Ah, some of you are surprised. Some of you say, oh, yeah, God. You see, because this, culturally speaking, in Jesus' time, was not accepted. You see how shepherds that were listening to the parable, they were like, man, he, he's saying that God is like us. You know how shocked they were? Same thing. When he's saying that God is looking for a coin like a woman, you know how women felt? <gasps> he's saying that God is like us. Are you following me? But that's what the parable is saying. I'm not saying that. Saying that a woman looked just like God. By the way, the sheep know that it is lost, right? Doesn't know how to come back, right? How about the coin? Does the coin know that it's lost? No, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a metal, right? So it doesn't know that it's lost. Doesn't know how to come back. So what does God do? He searched for it. He searched for it. He lights a lamp and searched for it. And when she finds it, what does she do? She calls all the neighbors. She's not just happy. She calls all the neighbors and what? And they 
throw a fiesta. That's right. Right? They throw a big fiesta. Why? 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 Same reason. The coin was lost, but now it's what? Let's celebrate. Amen? So, Pastor Harding, some people are looking at me very serious. Eh? They don't like fiestas. Who doesn't like fiestas? They, oh, they like parties. They don't like fiestas. Okay. Because you know that uh, the Old Testament, there are a lot of fiestas. They're called feast. Where do you think we get the word fiesta? Feast, right? And you got the tabernacle feast, right? What else do you have? The Passover feast, right? And they all had music, by the way. Trumpets, trumpets. Oh, Latinos like trumpets, you know. So they're celebrating. There's a big party. They're celebrating. All right, all right. So, okay. Then, then he tells the third parable, okay? It's that parable that we call the what? The prodigal son. Do you know what prodigal means? You know that meaning of that word, prodigal? In Spanish, it's prodigo. What does prodigal mean? What does that mean? No, it doesn't mean run away. It, 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 it has a connotation of waste, but it, but, it, but it literally means somebody that, yes, that wastes a lot, expends a lot. Okay? He spends a lot. For that reason, some scholars have suggested that he should not be called the prodigal son, but the prodigal father. Because he's the one that wastes everything, spends everything in order to save you. The protocol father should be called. But the, the story says that a man had two sons, right? And the youngest goes to his father and says what? Give me what belongs to me. Give me my inheritance. You know what he is suggesting? What is the suggestion? I wish you were dead. That's the suggestion. Because inheritance you only get when somebody dies, right? So when he's saying, give me my inheritance, what he's saying is, you're not good for me as long as you're alive. But if you were dead, man, I'm w I wish you were dead. That's what the younger son is saying. Now, in that culture, see, that culture and ours, is, they're very different. You see, the main value, the main value in our in our culture, in the West, is possessions, okay? We value people based on their possessions. That, generally speaking, okay? In the West, that's what we do, okay? If somebody has a lot of possession, he's respected, right? He's well-respected. The more they have, the better. That's the West. That's why here in the West, people kill for a pair of sneakers, See, because their values is possession. So if I want that pair of sneakers, I'm willing to kill you in order to get them. You following me? Okay, in that culture, it's different. The greatest value is respect and honor. Honor. You see? Especially the elderly. The father is honored and well-respected. That's why when you hear stories in that part of the world, let's say a Muslim family, you know, in an Islam state, and a son becomes or a daughter becomes a Christian, they're willing to kill it 
kill the daughter and the son. And nobody complains. You see, you are shocked. How can they kill somebody? Well, because they are shaming the family. They bringing dishonor to the family. You see, in the same way, they are also shocked when they hear that in New York, somebody, a, a teenager killed another teenager for a pair of sneakers. They're shocked. They're like, why? Why? Because here, we honor possessions. Are you following me? Over there, honor and respect. Over here, possession. So over there, when the son said to the father, I wish you were dead, that father had every right, every right to kill him. And nobody was going to complain. In fact, they were going to praise him. They were going to say, well done. Good. He deserved it. He disrespects you. He brought dishonor to your family. See, that's the culture. But this father does the unthinkable. This father does something very strange. He grants the son's request. Says, son, you wish I was dead? That's okay. That's fine. You want your money? I'll give you your money. He gives them money. That's shocking. That's not normal. The servants and the neighbors, when they heard this, they didn't understand why this father is acting in such a manner. He's going against the culture. He's doing something that is strange. And so he goes, and as you know, the story says, help me out, brother. Uh, I think I need a battery. Yeah, so next slide. So he goes and wastes everything and all his possessions and a big, um, I was going to say flood, <laughs> but not flood. Uh, what is it? Famine. Come to the land, right? There's no food. Somebody hire him to feed pigs, to take care of pigs. And the uh, food for the pigs he wants, but nobody gives that to him. So it is in that condition that the scripture says that he came to himself, right? Which implies that he was that he was out of his himself, out of his senses, because that's what sin does. When you're involved in sin, you're not thinking right. But at some point he came to him to himself, to him to his senses. And and and, and he started thinking and said, Well, in my father's house. The servant, not the children, the servants are treated better than what I am being treated here. And then, I, I always said this, this guy, this young man was a good preacher. Because right there, he wrote a very interesting speech. He was an excellent public speaker. He wrote, watch, a, watch a speech. He says, I'm going to go home. He's right. And I'm going to say, Father, look, look, look the respectful manner in his addressing. Father, watch this. And I'm saying he's a preacher because now he's going to put some the theology in it. Sound theology. He says, I have sinned against heavens, God. And then he says, and also against you. You see the order? That's theologically sound. You sin against God, then you sin against people, right? So he said, I'm going to say, Father, I have sinned against God and also against you. Tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. Good speaker, right? I am no longer worthy 
Watch him, watch him, because he's a tremendous speaker. That guy is a preacher. That young man is a preacher. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make. <laughs> some psychology in there. Make me like one of your servants. And he said, man, this speech is good. He put it in his pocket, and he started walking towards home. Help me out. Towards home. Now, the story says that when the father saw him at the distance, which implies what? That he was what? Waiting for him. Now, now, don't miss the lesson, right? Because in the first parable, the shepherd goes after the sheep. In the second parable, the lady looks for the coin. But in the third parable, the father doesn't go after the son. The father just what? Waits for his son. What is the implication? There are some sinners that you don't need to go after them. You see, there are different types of sinners. We should not treat all sinners the same. We should not use the same approach for everything. Or we need to go and knock on doors. We need to give food. No, you use different approaches with different people. There are some people that the more you look for them, the more you push them farther and farther away. There are some sinners that all you can do, the heavenly thing to do, the godly thing to do, is to leave them alone. And just pray for them. Because it's not just a waiting, doing nothing. This is an active waiting. He's waiting, but he's looking out. You see, he's not, no, he's active. He's waiting and expecting every day that he will what? He's praying. Parents, don't ever stop praying for your children. Amen? Don't ever. And at that distance, when he sees them, the father does something that is what? Oh, shameful. Dishonorable. You see, in that society, all people do not run. No, it's, it brings dishonor. All people move with grace. They move slow. White hair, very well respected. And they move with grace, slow. They don't run. To run is foolishness. It, it just remember the long robes that they had, right? So in order for them to run, they had to what? Can you imagine an old man picking? It, it looks like a clown. It looks ridiculous. You understand? When the man is running, the neighbors are criticizing. The neighbors are upset. And a lot of people don't do, do not do certain things because they're afraid of what people are going to say. A lot of people in the church know what is the right thing to do, yet they don't do it because people are going to criticize them. But the, this father doesn't care that people are criticizing him. Tell me why. Tell me why he doesn't care. Why? Because he loves his son. When you stop at somebody, at something that you're attempting to do, because you're afraid people are going to criticize you. You know what that means? You don't love sinners. You don't love sinners. If they see me with this guy, what are people going to think? That I'm also... Right? Do you know that saying in Spanish? It goes like this. Anybody know Spanish? Okay. So I'm going to say in Spanish and then I'm going to translate it, all right? In Spanish it says, Dime con quien andas y te diré quien eres. <laughs> I don't know. In English it says, uh, 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 Tell me who you hang out and I will tell you who you are. 
Huh? Tell me what? Ah, show me your company and I'll tell you who you are. Now, do you agree with that saying? Ah, do you agree with that saying? Is that saying true? What do you think? Is that saying, ah, Pastor, Pastor went the, 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 the safe route? Yes and no. Right? Well, you know, it's not true. Absolutely, it's not true. You know why? Because Jesus hung out with sinners. And was he a sinner? No. You know that we are sent to make disciples? We are not sent to make disciples of Seventh-day Adventists. We are sent to make disciples of sinners. And the only, you know what the first step to make disciples is? Guess what the first? Huh? To become friends. You cannot make a disciple if you are not friends with somebody, right? You know that, right? If I go to the bus station and I go to a complete stranger, hey, follow me to the church. You got to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What is that stranger going to say to me? If he says anything at all. Because most likely he will what? Right? And then we say, oh, pastor, these people are stubborn, pastor. You don't know how many years I've been inviting my neighbors. Of course, you're not friends with them. How do you become friends with people? How? Do we even know how to become friends? You know, I asked young people once, Pastor, because I was in youth ministry, how many non-Adventist friends do you have? And this guy said, mm, in school, my friends are Adventists. The church, Pathfinder, I don't have friends that are non-Adventists. It's a tragedy. How are we going to reach a world? How are we going to make disciples if we're not friends with people? Because it's easy to be friends with people that think like us, right? That dress like us, right? That eat like us, right? Right? Oh, those people eat strange things, right? Oh, they dress in... They don't even speak English, you know? How am I going to relate to them? You know, that's a great challenge that we have here in South Florida. As I go around visiting churches, 55 pastors, 130 churches approximately. As I go around, you know what I find? You know what I find? The same people all over. If I go to a Hispanic church, a lot of Cubans. I love them. A lot of Cubans. Hey. If I go to a Caribbean church, a lot of Jamaican, Caribbean, Trinidarians. I love them. I love them. I love them. Where are the Russians that are in South Florida? Where are the Eastern Europeans that are in South Florida? You know that one of the biggest communities in South Florida are Vietnamese? Where are they in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Where are they? Where? There's only one Romanian church in Hollywood, in the whole state, one Romanian church. But when I go to Publix, I see a lot of Eastern Europeans. Where are they? They're not in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You see our challenge? Because our message, the three angels' message, is to go and be preached to the whole world. And God is bringing the world to South Florida. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? The whole world is coming to South Florida. There are people from all over the world. But we're not reaching them. Why? Because we like to be around our own. Yes, sir. If you eat tortillas, I'm there. I like my tacos. If you give me raw tea, I'm there because it looks like tacos. Right? 
And if you put red hot sauce on it, I'm there because I like spicy, right? We like to be people that are like us. But God has sent us to give this message to the whole world. That means I need to become uncomfortable as I am a missionary. Do you understand that you are a missionary? Do you understand that? We need to open up to people that look different than us. That speak different than us. That eat different than us. That dress different than us. That's the mission field. And it's right out there, out of that door. As you step out of this door, there is a mission field out there. I am sad to tell you, Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Florida, boy, we're behind. We are be behind. And notice, I'm saying, I go to the Hispanic church and I see the same people. Third generation Hispanics, where are they? They're not coming to the Seventh-day Adventist church. They're not. The man is running. He goes to his son. His son I want to think that, told him, wait, wait, dad, wait, wait. I have something to read. Dig into his pocket and he start reading. You can read the Bible. It says this. Father, I am no longer, I have sinned against heaven. Did he finish the speech? He didn't. Because the Bible says that his father what? Hug him. And have you noticed when somebody gives you a bear hug, you cannot talk? I'm no longer to, right? Because his father is hugging him. He didn't let him finish his speech. He says, bring sandals, bring clothes, bring a ring. And the fattest calf, kill it. Because we're going to make a fiesta with the fattest calf. We're going to make a fiesta. Invite the neighbors. Why? Why? Why a big fiesta? Why? Because my son was lost, was dead, and now he's alive, he's found, and I want to what? Celebrate. Hallelujah. Oh, what a beautiful parable. Three parables. They all finish with a big fiesta. Amen? Except this is not finished. It says that the eldest son was out doing what? Working. Is that good? Working is good. It seems that he was late. So he was working until late. Is that good? Yeah, it's good to work. Come on. It's good to work. And he's coming. And the Bible says that from the distance, he what? He heard the music. He heard the fiesta. And I wonder if people are driving by, do they know there is a fiesta in this building? I just, I'm wondering. But it says that from the distance, he heard. And when he got close to the house, he called a servant. It's an interesting character in, this, in the story because we don't even know his name, but he's very interesting. He calls him and says, what is going on? You know people that when you ask them something, in fact, sometimes you don't even ask them, and they give you more details than what you were asking. Do you know people like that? This servant was like that. He said, well, man, I don't want to tell you, but while you were out, your brother, you know, 
the white that the one that embarrasses all the one that almost killed your father almost my father but he almost killed him with the shame and, and you can see the, the elder brother just getting mad well he had the audacity to come back can you believe it no shame came back but that's not all oh that's not all oh if you had seen him he was dirty and he smelled bad he was oh it was disgrace but that's not all your father oh your father you should see the shame he put his family to do you know that he ran toward him in full display and the neighbors were criticizing the whole household and when he saw him he embraced him he, he even though he was stinky and dirty, he, he hugged him. Oh, and then he ordered us to put sandals and clothes in a ring. Oh, I'm sad to tell you this. That's not the worst part. The worst part is that, you remember the fat calf, the one that could hardly walk because he was really fat? And the son is going, yeah, yeah. Well, barbecue. He ordered us to kill because he's making a fiesta. He's celebrating. That, that's, that's what you heard. There's a fiesta. He's celebrating that that ungrateful son came back. And you can see this man is mad. And you know that people, this is a parenthesis, all right? You know that people that come and tell you things, you know that they also take things from you? Do you know that? This is a parenthesis. The worst thing, the worst offense that can be done to you is when somebody brings a gossip to you. You know, that's the worst offense. That's the worst offense when somebody says, hey, let me tell you something. That's the worst offense. You should be offended. You should be stop people right there. You know why? When a gossiper says, let me tell you something. You know what she is implying or he is implying? That you are also a gossiper. So you should be offended. You should stop people on the track and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Ask them, have you talked to that person? 99% of the time the answer is no. Then go and talk to that person. Don't allow yourself to be offended by gossipers. Because when they bring and tell you something, they are saying you are like me. Let's close the parenthesis. So he goes back into the feast, that's the servant, and he says to the father, right? Well, I don't know how to tell you this. Man, I don't, I don't know who told your son. I don't, you know, he goes, right? They, they never implicate themselves, right? I don't know who told your son, but somebody did. He told him everything, and boy, is he mad. I told him to come in. He refuses. He doesn't want to come in, right? And what does the father do? What does the father do? He does the unthinkable. He goes out. He leaves the fiesta. He goes out to talk to his elder son, right? Now, you remember that I told you that the youngest was a good speaker, good at making speeches? This guy was also a good speaker. He had a speech ready. 
He didn't make it right there. He had it ready for many years. He just didn't have the opportunity to deliver the speech. This was a prime opportunity. And you know what he says? He says this. All these years. That's his speech. Watch it. He's been thinking about this for a long time. This is not the first time he's thinking about this. All these years, I've been working for you. Was that true? Yes, it was true. All these years, I've been working for you. Hard working. Was that true? Until late at night. Was that true? He says, all these years, I've been working. I never complain. I never ask you for anything. Never have I asked you for anything. And not even once, he says to his father, not even once, this is part of the speech, not even once you have given me not even a little goat to celebrate with my friends. Was that true? No, that was not true. He was lying. How do I know he was lying? Because his father says to him, a goat? You're asking me for a goat? He says, the whole farm is yours. You know that that's how we are? Sometimes we ask God for goat. Oh, Lord, can you help me here? We're so, we're few of you. We want goat. And God says, the whole farm is yours. What is the problem? We do not believe it. Like the eldest son. He didn't believe it. He said, you have never given me a goat. Father said, are you kidding me? Really? I've given you everything. Everything is yours. You don't have to ask me for a goat. The parable ends there. The father says, this son of mine was, no, he says, your brother was dead, was lost. And he, he says, this son of yours, right? When this son of yours, but the father said, your brother came back. The parable ends there, and it doesn't say if the elder's son went back in or went in. It's left for us to decide, right? What do you think? Do you think he went back in? What do you think? Wow, you say no. Why? Why are you so negative? Why are you so negative? Eh? He never goes back. Why? Why? Let me tell. Okay, let me put it this way. This is all a speculation. This is, don't go and say Pastor Rudy said that the Bible said that, all right? I'm speculating. But my speculation is based on the scripture, okay? You see, there is a trend or a pattern in the parables. The previous two parables, they end up what? Well, with a fiesta, right? The previous two end up well, right? Why the third should not end well? Why not? Why not? You think the elder son doesn't have a chance? And do you think he cannot change his heart? Do you think that the love of the father is strong enough to change the heart of the elder son? What do you think, church? Come on, church. You got to be optimistic. Please, you got to be optimistic. This is like Peter walking on the water. You remember Peter walking on the water? Have you ever seen a picture of Peter walking on the water? Huh? Mm -mm. No. Google it. They always show him with the water up to here. Oh, look at it. Sometimes they even only show a hand. 
And you say, that's Peter. You, you know that's Peter, right? You never see Peter walking on the water. You know why? You know why? Because we like to focus on the negative. But the Bible says that Peter actually what? Walk. And he walked back. Yes, he was not dragged back to the boat. He walked back. But you will see weak of prayers as to why he went down. Why? Because we like that. We like to focus on why he went down. He looked back. He was afraid. And all that's true. I'm not negating that. But, but we need to focus on the power of God. God was powerful enough. It's my suggestion. Please don't. I'm not forcing you to believe anything. But I believe that every sinner has a chance. And even though I know that there are sinners that will reject. I know that. I'm aware. I'm not naive. But I believe the power of God, the power of the love of God is sufficient to make people turn their hearts back. And I believe the parable of the prodigal son or the prodigal father also ended up with a big fiesta. You know why? Because this story of this earth is also going to end up with a big fiesta that is called the wedding. It will be a wedding. There will be a bride, and there will be a groom, and there will be a lot of food. It will be a big table with a lot of food, and it is a fiesta, and you and I are what? Invited to it. Amen? Amen? And not only are you invited, but you are empowered to invite others with you to that big fiesta. What do you say, church? Would you like to be there? Amen? Would you like to be there? God bless you. I hope to see you all there. This evening, we're going to talk about the power of celebrating the cross, what took place at the cross. God bless you, church. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's message. We are always encouraged to know how God is working through this ministry to touch lives. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending an email at podcast at savinggracesda.org. As the Holy Spirit impresses you, you may also support this ministry financially by visiting savinggracesda.org.